This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That's such a huge motivator for me as I want my kids to be like, mom wasn't just our mom. You know, she's... Mm-hmm. She had a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Brendan Matthews, who is the author of the story collection, This Is Not a Love Song, and the novel The World of Tomorrow. This Is Not a Love Song was longlisted for the Massachusetts Book Awards and shortlisted for the William Saroyan International Prize for Writing. The World of Tomorrow was named an honor book by the Massachusetts Book Awards and longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. It was also named an Indie Next Great Read and an Editor's Choice by the New York Times Book Review. A Fulbright Scholar to Ireland, Brendan's fiction has twice appeared in the Best American Short Stories and in Glimmer Train, Virginia Quarterly Review, Salon, Cincinnati Review, and other publications. He lives with his wife and their four children in Lenox, Massachusetts, and teaches at Bard College at Simons Rock. I feel like four children deserves all caps. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's showing off at that point. Yeah. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean... I have three and I still feel like four is at least four is at least twice three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Somebody had said to us once that anything more, any, one more than the number you have to anyone seems like crazy and two more than you have seems like they're from another planet. Like who, yeah. who does percent At that yes. point, if you're at five, six, seven kids, I'm like, you're an alien. What? <laughs> how, how does that any, like when we got pregnant with our third we were like, what's one more? But you know what? One more is like four more. Yeah. Just, just so everyone knows. And it's great. It's wonderful. But just so you know. Because <laughs> you start all over again. Right? You've forgotten That's everything right. about having, having one that age. That's oh, right. My friend Matt said, the clock started at zero again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, Brendan has four children. Um, what are you going to read to us? I'm going to read um, part of a story called Maniacs. Ooh. And all you need to know from the point I'm going to pick it up is that it's 1980 and there are a bunch of um, preteen boy cousins whose teenage aunt has taken them to the beach for the day. At the beach, they dump their towels and t-shirts in a pile and race to the water. The first cold blast of the Atlantic sent a shock up their bodies, but they didn't stop until they were submerged. They tasted salt and bobbed in the water as each wave rolled in, lifting them and setting them down. They rode in front of the best waves, but when they messed up, they were pummeled 
scraped against the bottom, pushed against rocks and shells and sand, coming up gasping and dripping and going back for more. Their aunt sat on the beach with a fat paperback. One of the cousins had picked up the book at their grandparents' house. A hollow-eyed girl peeked out from a hole cut into the cover. And when he opened the cover, a family of pale, empty-eyed ghouls stared at him. He'd ask his aunt why she read books like that. And she told him sometimes it felt good to be scared, that it was better than being bored. He thought about the book cover as he and his cousins challenged the waves. It was one thing to look out among the heads of his cousins to see their faces and chatter about the next wave and the best strategy for riding it up the beach. But it was another to imagine himself and his cousins from below the surface, to see a mass of spindly legs dangling in the water like baited hooks, and to wonder which one would get yanked down and what they would do when one head disappeared and a sudden welter of blood colored the water. Everyone talked about sharks, but what if it wasn't sharks below the surface, but the children from the book cover? What if they were like ghosts, drowned but still half alive, reaching their cold fingers up to snatch at the feet of the living? He treaded water and looked from face to face. His cousins were laughing and talking, immune to fears of sharks and sea ghosts. He forced himself to plunge beneath the surface and swim farther from the beach, farther than anyone else had gone and to let the next wave carry him into the middle of the pack, and the next wave, the biggest yet, to sweep them all out of the water and scatter them on the foam-slick sand. They rose up gasping and coughing, scraped by stones and broken shells. One of the cousins had the back of his trunks yanked halfway down, his white ass cheeks blazing beneath a line of bright red skin. He staggered on the sand, and before he pulled up the waistband, one of the other cousins pointed at him and yelled, Nude beach! The others echoed him, nude beach, they laughed, and nude beach, they cried again. Even the cousin who'd mooned them took up the chant, wagging his butt and laughing so hard he almost fell when the next wave hit. It became a game of tag, tap someone on the shoulder or slap them on the ass and say, nude beach, and then scramble out of the way. The cousins chased and tagged from the tide line to the soft, thick sand that sprayed with every step. By the time they'd worn themselves out, they were gritty and exhausted. They trudged for the last time into the water and staggered out, looking for their aunt on the blanket, for their towels and t-shirts and any scrap of food still left in the cooler, but all the landmarks were gone. They had left their towels between a blue beach umbrella and a rainbow umbrella, but both had been folded up and taken away. They had let themselves drift with the current, and though they scanned the beach, she was gone. Back and forth they walked, waterlogged and sunburned and starving. They found two towels spread out, a beach bag that maybe looked familiar, a pile of sneakers and flip-flops that could have been theirs. No one was willing to say for sure until they saw the fat paperback half covered by one of the towels. There was the pale glass-eyed girl, but still no sign of their aunt. They snapped sand from the towels, collected their shoes and shirts, and trudged up the path toward the parking lot. The station wagon was unlocked, but inside was like an oven, the hot, creamy smell of vinyl seats the chemical tang of carpet fibers. They opened all the doors and the rear gate and crawled inside. They wanted relief from the sun, though it was too late to stop the sunburns that were already blooming across their shoulders. Moving in and out of the car gave them something to do while they waited, but they were so itchy that their t-shirts felt stiff as sheet metal. Maybe they were in the wrong car. Maybe this only looked like the station wagon, or maybe their aunt had gone to the wrong car and was waiting for them. It was the kind of thing she would do. One of the parents had said that she needed to get her head screwed on straight. Two of the cousins reconnoitered the parking lot. All they found was a public drinking fountain, really just a spigot rising on a long pipe from a concrete pad. But they were as excited as sunbaked legionnaires stumbling on an oasis. The water tasted like hot pennies, but they gulped it until they thought they would burst. 
and then ran back to the car to share their discovery. One waited at the car while the other acted as guide for a return trip to the spigot. They tried to think of this as a game, hide and seek, scavenger hunt, find the ant. They all hoped that by the time they returned to the car, their aunt would be waiting for them, and she'd tell them they'd won the game, and their reward would be hot dogs and tall cups of Coke full of crushed ice. None of them knew how long they waited, only that it was getting dark when their aunt returned. A car prowled into the lot and rolled to a stop near the station wagon. When their aunt saw them lying on the bench seats, their legs hanging out the doors, and lying in the way back with the rear gate wide open, and lying on the hood staring up at the darkening sky, she said, shit and pushed open the car's door. She slammed it behind her, the engine spluttered, and the car cruised out of the lot. They didn't notice that their aunt's lips were swollen from kissing, that her cheeks were flushed and not from the sun. They couldn't smell the alcohol on her breath, sticky and sweet. She was wearing a t-shirt, but they didn't know that her bathing suit top was wadded up in her bag. They couldn't see how she smothered a stab of guilt and how it was followed by the sudden shock of the hell she'd face when her older sisters found out. So before the boys could say anything, she said it first. Where have you been? I've been looking all over for you. And I'll stop there. That was great. Thank you so much. Is that a news story, Brendan? Yeah, that's the um, that's the newest, most recent thing I've finished. Because I was going to say, I was like, I don't think this is from the collection. No, this is brand new. Awesome. When did you finish it? Uh, when did I finish it? I guess maybe in the spring. I, it, I wrote it last in the summer of 2020, and I thought it was a part of the novel I was working on. Wow. And then I realized it wasn't, but I wanted to, I took a break from the, from novel writing to, to see if I could write um, a really fast short story because I tend to write pretty slowly. That's crazy. We were just talking to Hillary Leichter about turning a, a short story into the, into her novel temporary. And it's cool that you, you realized, oh, actually this is just a short story. It's not part of this novel. Yeah, it, I thought it was like a flashback or something one of the characters was having. And then the more I wrote into the book, I realized, no, this doesn't this doesn't fit. But I really hate throwing anything away. So I said, OK, I'm going to give myself a couple of weeks to see what I can do with it. Is it easy story. for you to um, like when you're writing your novel, are you also like working on stories or is it like you're locked into the novel and then the stories come when they come? Or are you kind of like jumping to and fro? I'm pretty locked in, um, or I'm, I should say I'm trying to get locked in. That's what I am. <laughs> Aren't I'm we all? To get locked in. Um, there was a uh, there was a period really late in writing the first novel, which took a long, long time, and we could talk about that later. Um, where I was so desperate to finish something that um, there's a story in the collection that's really short. It's the one about the driving the babysitter home, mm-hmm. and I wrote that really quickly just because I was desperate to finish something. Mm-hmm. Cause I thought I'd never finished the novel. Um, so I tend to, usually when I'm working on short stories, I'll have like one that's in a later revision stage and one that's pretty brand new. And I try to toggle between the two of them, depending on um, my interest and whether I feel more like revising or, or writing new stuff. But um, I mean, this is only my second. I'm the, well, the thing I'm writing right now, who knows if it's going to become a novel or not, but I'm trying to get um, obsessed enough that I stick with that one all the time. Man, I was going to ask you this question, but I also want to ask you like 12 questions before it. (laughs) I was going to say, is obsession like a necessary part of, of your process when you're writing a novel? But then I realized you've written one novel and it took you forever. Yeah. And so it's hard to know. It's hard to know if that's part of your process. Well, it was, it was in some ways, it was like the most productive part of the novel, the first novel. Um, I mean, that, 
took like seven years to write. And it was a very much like on again, off again. I'd be mm-hmm. away from it for really long times because of the four kids, the aforementioned four kids right, and the right. job and everything else. But the last um, maybe 18 months on that, I was so locked in that mm-hmm. uh, any spare moment I had, I knew exactly what I needed to do. To do. I, was, I was so immersed in the, the characters and the world of the book that when I had time, I could just, it was like I could turn a switch and I miss that mm. feeling. I mean, I, it was it was like completely monomaniacal, um, or as much as you can be when you know you have other things going on in the world. But um, I miss that productively obsessed state, and I'm trying to get there with the current book. I want to pull back a little bit, and I know Alex will want to do the same thing and just sort of talk about how much we love this book oh, and the the things that you do in it because I think it's related to what you're saying. The methods that you have of building this world, which is just, Mm -hmm. it's stunning because I was telling Alex, one of my favorite things about it is you never just encounter someone that you never just, that person is going to, you're going to get a glimpse into any person you meet in this book. You're going to get a little glimpse or a bigger glimpse, depending into who they are and like how their day is going and, and where, where they're coming from in life. And it, it makes it so real it may and it i think it adds to the, like the propulsive nature of it and i can see if the last 18 months of working on it was just you sort of i know we keep saying locked in but locked in it seems like it's because you you had all these beautiful threads that you were able to then just pull taut and pull taut and pull taut and pull taut and i i'm 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 putting words into your mouth i don't know how it actually was for you but um we truly truly love this book and i feel like I, I'm going to be really sad when I'm, I'm only about 330 pages into it, but I'm going to be so sad when it's over and you better hurry on this next book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. Um, I, I, that, that state, like that pulling taut, that, that, that was how it felt like at the end. Um, but it, to get there was like, I don't know, the first five or so years of working on it. I mean, I hadn't written a novel. I didn't know how to write a novel, but mm-hmm. I was 40 and I was like, I, I better write a novel because you know, how much time, how much time do I have? I'm gonna be I know dead it's going to take a long time. <laughs> and that's probably what kept me from starting sooner because it was that I knew it was going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first started doing it, you know, I was writing these characters and whenever I got stuck or whatever, or just came away from it, I'd come back and maybe it would be a new character or something else. And I go, well, what about this? And what about this? And I reached a point where I had, I had a lot of pages, but I didn't have anything continuous. I just had all these sort of characters who I knew were sort of loosely related to each other. And um, I actually, the book takes place over the course of a week and I got a calendar and I took all the scenes that I'd written and I put them on the calendar. Well, oh, wow. so you did not have the plot outlined. You did not really have a sense. You maybe had a sense of an overall arc, Brendan, but you didn't, how did you, how did you go about actually cobbling everything together then? So you have everything up on the calendar and then mm-hmm. from that, what was the next step? So once I was on the calendar, I realized like that everything happened on Thursday and I needed to figure out it wasn't (laughs) like, oh my God, there's nothing on, nothing on Wednesday or none of these characters, you know, I I knew there couldn't be a moment where you get to Wednesday and it's only a single page where it's like, (laughs) everyone went grocery shopping on this day and and nothing happened. Um, I, I mean, I knew that it began with the arrival of these brothers in New York and I knew that it would end roughly end on that Saturday that the the king and queen of England visit the world's fair, you know, Mm -hmm. which was just gave me a thing to 
shoot for. I knew something had to happen around that date. And I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be. And then I just, you know, a lot of it was just figuring out once the, the characters were set in motion, um, what, like, like kind of like Lindsay said that pulling taught, like figuring out how they were connected to each other and, and where there were gaps and things that would happen that would matter a lot in terms of plot or things that would happen that would matter in terms of character, but have nothing to do with, you know, whatever you might think of as, as the plot of the book. I mean, I wanted to write, I went into it knowing it was going to be, I wanted to write a big sprawling um, book that felt kind of like life. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, to say that sometimes you're the main character, but frequently you're not. And I, so I didn't want any one character to feel like the protagonist. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted this really broad palette. And um, I mean, I, I just, I, I also am kind of a research junkie and which maybe is another reason why the book took so long. Cause some of the research was so much fun mm-hmm. that I would get lost in it and then realize I hadn't written anything, you know, in weeks or more, but I knew an awful lot about, you know, women's fashion in 1939. did you always as you were drafting did you always know that you were going to be switching povs the way you do in the novel yeah and i think when i first started working on the draft it was a little more um maybe a a gimmicky you know that it was a thing where every chapter we'd start in one person's head and you'd roll through the chapter and then there'd be like this little hinge at the last couple of pages where I'd flash into somebody else's head who was in that chapter and you kind of get their point of view. And I did that sort of chapter after chapter for a while until my editor told me it was really annoying. And he was right. <laughs> Cause it was, it was a little bit, I don't know. It was, I think it was a little bit like, Oh, look what I can do, but it was sort of at the expense of, of the story. Um, but I knew I wanted, I wanted to move around. I wanted to give a lot of characters a chance you know, it was a little, so the book is set, you know, kind of around the, around the music scene, the jazz world in, in New York in the late thirties. And um, when I started writing it, I really didn't like, I like, I'm a jazz fan, but not a big band jazz fan. I really didn't like big band music. Um, but that's, that was the that's only surprising. game in town. I mean, I, I, I came to love Count Basie in particular. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was amazing about Basie, who I didn't know much about when I started writing the book is that he let his musicians solo. Like the band mm-hmm. always moved forward. Everything was in service to the song, but he would let car- he would let his his musicians step out in a way that other band leaders did not and solo. And then he'd draw them back into the band and somebody else would get a chance. And the more I heard that, I was like, that's how this book is going to be structured. Mm-hmm. Like there's wow. going to be a, there's going to be a way that it's all pulled together. It all has to be in service to the larger book. Um, but everybody's going to get a chance to solo. That's incredible. Yeah, because the way that you talk about the band that Martin puts together for the wedding and you know the the considerations that he's putting into it and just the way that the musicians are and like it's surprising that you weren't a fan but and now you you know now you've come to it and then the some of the most beautiful parts are when you're describing um like there's this these photographs that Lily's taking or these scenes that she's witnessing and then she takes the pictures it's just beautiful it's such a beautiful it's just a beautiful like snapshot of the time. And also you get into her head and you get into this sort of this world of 1939, New York. Were those based on actual photographs or did you just come up with those? Some of them are based on real photographs. And Lily is kind of a comp- a composite of a lot of female photographers in the late twenties and thirties. There was this whole generation of incredible um portraitists and street photographers and war photographers um, that Lily was like, I I kind of situated her among them. So some of those are are photos that I saw that um, Helen Levitt um, had taken 
or other uh, other photographers at the time. Um, Gisela Freund um, was this did these incredible portraits, and I wanted like those to be some of Lily's. The there's some stuff that comes up later in the book when you get to the end. There's some other um, photos that are that are mentioned that are very definitely other people's photos. Mm. But other of it was just like I I tried to immerse myself in New York in the 30s, and the best way to do that is there's just incredible photographic record of that period. So I, I spent my time like you know watching old films and and looking at photos and um, I got like, this is the state of the, the, maybe not so productive obsession, but led there. Like I found somebody on, on eBay had four hours of color home movies of oh, New York God. in the thirties. Oh my gosh. Like silent color home movies, mostly taken at the, at the world's fair. And Unreal. it's just people walking around and waving to the camera or not. And the amazing thing was because it, it was like early color film, all the pictures I'd seen before have been black and white. Mm -hmm. And when I saw those color photos, I was like, like, shit, this is what everyone looked like. This is how they dressed. And everybody's so beautiful. And the clothes, the colors are just so radiant. I wanted to find a way in the prose to capture that. One thing I'm, I'm so curious about, Brendan, is that the fact that you, you said, you know, you, the structure of the book, the plot a little bit came together later in the process. And I think one thing about the world tomorrow that is so um, striking and just is something that I immediately knew this was a book that I was just going to have with me for a long time uh, was you're so good in transition. And I feel like a lot of times if without a sense of the whole, sometimes it's, it's hard to be as great as is possible within a specific section in transition without kind of having a sense of the, of the broader world or uh, the direction you're headed are, were some of the, the hard right and left turns that you take in the novel that take place in transition um, present from the start, or were they things that you kind of reverse engineered once you had a larger sense of, of the scope of the story you were telling? Oh my God, that's a good question. I, I, there was so much reverse engineering. I, you know, I would write for a while in different sections. And even once I had the calendar and started sort of filling things in, but you know, I would, the semester would get really to a point where it seemed hard to write or there'd be stuff going on with the kids or whatever else. And I'd be away from it for like weeks or more. And when I would come back to it, the stuff I would write didn't sound like the stuff from before. You know, it was somebody else had, had written it in a way. And so I would try to like reverse engineer it into this wherever, whatever the tone or style that I've been working on. And there was so much um, of moving pieces around um, throughout the book and trying to find the way to put the way to put them in the right alignment. You know, there were scenes that, that could have happened on this one day, but maybe they were this day, but if it was this day, it would affect this. And really like until the end, that's the kind of stuff that was, that was happening. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, as I filled up that calendar more and I got a sense of where everybody was, that helped you know one of the, the the book that was for me like the the north star that i was chasing the whole time i was i was writing this there were a few but high on that list was um the known world edward p jones's oh novel. my god mm, yes yeah. and oh. what i love about that book is it shifts point of view all the time. i mean god god is one of the perspectives at one point like you get god's <laughs> perspective it constantly moves around there's no sense of plot for the first two-thirds of the book it's just these characters and these, this movement between their, like they're related to each other, you move around them. And then there's a moment about two thirds of the way through that book where he turns the key on the plot of the book or the, the, the sort of suspense that drives you to the end. And it's like, he's built this engine. You haven't even noticed it. He turns the key and everything just comes to life. Mm -hmm. So um, I felt like with that in mind, I was 
pretty comfortable for a while, just sort of moving from character to character and letting, laying the groundwork for what I hoped would be the propulsive motion of the late stage of the book. But that took, like, none of this happened quickly or easily or anything. And I was constantly like looking backwards and trying to rearrange the pieces. And every time I wrote something new, I was going back to the beginning and trying to all line it all up. That's, that's so interesting. One of the things that Lindsay and I had been texting back and forth about the, the novel was I told her, this novel does not work if the prose isn't incredibly clean and also a little bit spare in places because you need room for the forward movement to get you to the next person. And even though this is like a heavily peopled novel and the, 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 the world is evoked very richly and you know the the we open on it a incredible boat and we're in new york city and so on and so forth these places are amazing the the prose itself i, I was like if this was if these sentences were dense the novel just doesn't work did you always have a sense of that kind of clean approach to, to your sentence making or is that something that's been hard won i mean i guess i would say it's something i'm, I'm really I think a lot, whether it's in a short story or uh, in the novel, just about the rhythm of every sentence. Um, it's much harder to do in the novel because there's so many more sentences. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted I wanted the language to to have to be really energetic. I just felt like um, like to get back to that idea of the like Count Basie songs. Like I'm writing about a world where the number one like a rule for a song is it's got to swing. Like it's got to, it's got to have mm. this, this, this push to it. And I wanted the book to sound like that, which, which is not to say like, you know, that wasn't about dense complication, but it was about like really lining up the verbs, lining up the nouns, naming the thing that I was talking about, like not getting too abstract and philosophical in certain moments, just trying to constantly ground it in, in their own experience um, or the experience of these characters and to let that like draw you along. I feel like another aspect of that that Alex is getting at is like like the confidence in this book is is I don't know uh, jealousy inducing like <laughs> the control you have over the prose and the imagery and what's happening and just the sheer confidence of this book I never I mean as a writer I'm always like looking for the author as I'm reading I'm you know like aha I see you which I love because I feel like that's enhances it for me but but throughout it was just I felt like I was I was being led you know like and I I, I there's nowhere where I'm like aha Brendan I see you <laughs> once again you're using the word lodestar or whatever but you know like right. it's 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 wild to hear you talking about how much reverse engineering and how much anguish went into the making of this because it feels so freaking polished and confident yes. well that's i guess that's you know seven years in the making it'll it makes it the thing that comes out the other side can look pretty polished the thing that was the hardest for me was like you know um you asked about these kind of shifting point of views and i so there's this close third person with a lot of the characters and after a while it started to feel a bit like i felt a little trapped and what i kept trying to find was like where's the voice that that's above that voice because it's really easy. Like I like to sort of slip into a character and see the world the way they see it. But finding that, um, and this is like, again, like an Edward P. Jones thing, he does this beautifully. Um, Jane Austen does this really well. Like, how do you find a voice that's a narrator's voice that's not attached to any of the characters? And that was the one that when I finally in 
some of the late going found a way to do that, like to kind of pull the narrator's head out of the, out of any one character and tell the story. That was for me, like that was exciting. Cause I, I think, you know, uh, my short fiction, I think also tends to be like character focused and, and where there's a voice, it's a character driven voice. And so I was kept trying to find that, like that, like 19 confident 19th century voice. Um, that's just telling you the story doesn't have any attachment or affiliation to a particular character, but knows them all, sees them all. Um, that took a long time to find. I was just going to say, there's a paragraph I've been staring at, and it's it's the first paragraph I hit in the book where I was like, holy shit. It's the, it's on the ninth page where, and I'm going to read like, I, I was never bar mitzvahed, but like I, when you go to bar mitzvah and you, all the speeches come about how great the, the <laughs> it is, this is, I feel like this is my bar mitzvah. Thank you. This is like all this. We love good books. Yeah, it's good. And we're, we're having a great time at your bar mitzvah. Like hell yeah. Food is awesome. The music is great. So I have a beer. I'm great. <laughs> I, I'm going to read your words to you real quick. Cause I love this paragraph and it's the one where I, when I, when I had to text Lindsay and be like, Holy shit, we got a good one here. Um, <laughs> So we open, we open on a ship, we open with characters who are impersonating other people. And then suddenly you get this paragraph. No one at the table knew that 10 days earlier, Francis Xavier Dempsey had been an inmate in Mountjoy prison, Dublin, where meals were strictly a one spoon affair convicted of trafficking in books banned under the censorship of publications act, as well in other luxuries prescribed by the tariff-hungry, priest-fearing politicians of the fledgling Republic of Ireland. He had been halfway through a three-year sentence. At the same time, his brother Michael, not yet 18, had been an inmate of a different sort, locked up in the seminary and preparing for life as a missionary in some steamy, godforsaken corner of the globe. And their father, 10 days ago, he was still alive, no doubt muddling through another lesson, instructing the sons and daughters of farmers on the proper conjugation of the Latin verb amare. Come on. Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing is you didn't just have to keep in your head and in this book, 19th century vernacular for America, but you also had to do it for Ireland. And I know you're a Fulbright scholar from, you know, in Ireland, but that is a lot. That's a lot. And thinking about the slang that they would use and the shorthand and the way that Francis speaks as Angus. And then Francis speaks to his brothers I mean, if you, if you wait until your 40s to write your debut novel, there's a lot of stuff piled up. I mean, there's just so much. <laughs> I mean, you know? I knew, like I I've knew been, I I've made been, a mistake. I've been magpieing all this stuff for, for decades, and it's got, this was the place where it was all going to go. Oh, I was going to say something stupid about how, how many hours I've spent watching true crime television, and I always told myself, <laughs> there's a reason for this. <laughs> it's coming. It's still coming. But I, we would love to hear about kind of your path to publishing the world tomorrow and the the collection as well. Um, just kind of hear your, your general path to, to publication. Well, I mean, it, it was, I guess everybody has a different path, but this one, so I, um, so I got my MFA. I started when I was 34, I think, when I started the MFA program I was in. Why did you start at age 34? So I've been living in Chicago from what, 92 to 2003. My wife and I, so I met my wife in Chicago and we got married and we had a baby and we had a house in Lincoln Park and Lincoln Park, Lincoln Square. I'm sorry. Much nicer Ooh. Lincoln Square. <laughs> um, and I kept telling myself I was going to write and I wasn't. I mean, like in the margins, I wasn't finishing anything. And I was, this was the thing, you know, from the moment I'd met Margaret, my wife, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be a writer someday. And she's like, oh, great. And then 10 years in, I hadn't done anything. <laughs> um, 
And when I found out that we were having a baby, I was like, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do this. And the thing that really got me was I knew that someday I'd have that talk with, you know, our daughter and I'd Mm -hmm. say, oh, you always have to chase your dreams. And she'd say, okay, did you? And I'd be like, well, not me, (laughs) but like you, you have to do that. (laughs) So sort of in short order, um, I applied for MFA programs and I got an UVA. And so we um, quit our jobs and sold the house and moved to Virginia. Holy shit. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> knowing knowing how much houses go for in Lincoln Square, not the smartest financial decision oh, we ever made. But that yeah. honestly was my exact thought the yep. whole time. I'm like, oh, oh, we went back. We went back a couple years later, and the house next to ours that was identical to ours had been torn down and rebuilt into this monstrosity. Which mm-hmm. apparently the, the the guys who live next door to us got paid a million dollars to have their house torn down. Oh, huh. God. But I try not to think about that part of things. So you know, I. I MFA, which was a great experience. And I was beginning to write and publish short stories. And I kept trying to pull those together into a collection. Um, actually went out on submission with a collection in like 2009, which was a terrible time to do that because mm. the economy was in free fall and nobody wanted to publish short stories. Yeah, we're familiar. Um, and yeah, and I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I went to college in the uh, late 80s. I graduated college in 91. And the the path to publication was like you write a collection, a claimed collection. And then a few years later, you follow that up with a novel. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was sending stuff around, all we were hearing was, um, hey, does he have a novel? Does he have a novel? And I didn't. So, you know, we eventually stopped sending the collection out. And I started working on the novel um, in 2009. And Three years, and then and the collection I would start. I started sending out to like contests, and in 2012, um, I sent it to an editor at Lookout Books in North Carolina, and uh, they had published Edith Perlman's collection, and they just put out a book by Steve Almond. And I was like, oh, they like short stories. I'll send this to them, and I didn't hear anything from them either. And six months later, the editor um, wrote to me to say, hey, I'm not at Lookout anymore. I'm now in New York at, at a you know bigger publisher in New York, and I love the stories, but he's like, I'm sorry, but I have to ask if you have a novel. And I said, well, it's not done, but I'm working on one. And this was like, this is actually like this time of year, 2012. Um, and he said, well, you know, things are going to be crazy through the holidays. So um, if you could get me, just get me what you have, like, let's say mid to late January, just send me what you got. And I had probably 200 and something pages of the book, but none of them not continuous. I mean, spread across yeah. the entire landscape. And so I spent six weeks and I turned those pages into pages one through page 120 of the book. Wow. Um, and I just was like furiously knitting and, and, and cobbling and whatever it, so that, so that it looked consistent. And I sent that to him and he liked it, but he said, um, you know, I can't just, this is, I can't bring this yet. Cause it's a partial. Um, but do you want to keep working on this together? Cause I like what's going on here. And I got to tell you at that point, just having anybody interested in it was oh, yeah. such a huge shot in the arm. Yeah, I mean, even though it yeah. was all like on spec, it was, huge mm-hmm. and so he and I worked on it and he and I, I kind of realized quickly that he was smart um this is Ben George my editor smart and um had great feedback and so we worked on it for a while and he was going to bring it to the publisher where he was and then in the spring um he left to go to a different publisher oh my gosh so he's like okay I've got to start over again and he sort of said like I, I I can't show up at this new place and say, hey, here's a half a book by a guy I've never heard of. <laughs> we should buy this. Um, but he said, do you want to keep working on this with me? And I was like, sure. So we worked on it for another year. And I was just kind of, you know, adding to adding to it and getting his comments on it um, every once in a while. And then it was in June of 2014 that we kind of officially submitted it as the 
the manuscript of the short story collection, which he'd already seen, and the partial of the novel. And Little Brown bought it. Wow. Real. Yeah. But it still took me. I mean, it was still, that was 2014. And I think I was supposed to finish it within a year. And it was supposed to be like 400 pages long. Um, <laughs> and it took me like two and a half more years. And it was uh, over 500 pages long. Mm. Was uh, it even was it even longer than that? And you had to call it down? Oh, God, yeah. The, there was a draft that there was a late in the game. It was over 600 pages. Oof. And Ben said to me, for a debut book, uh, <laughs> you'd like to see it. <laughs> It would be great if the, the 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 last page started with the number four. He said, <laughs> um, he said, we can get by with a five, but it cannot be a six. <gasps> and I think that we, uh, and there was a stage like over the course of a few weeks where I think we cut like 80 pages of dialogue out of the book. Oh my, oh gosh. my gosh. All of which, all of which made it better, but it was 80 pages of dialogue. Oh my gosh. That is, that is so many pages. <laughs> yeah, can, you, a lot. can you believe all these like weird Cause you hear things like that all the time. Like, well, you know, um, for a debut author, 600 page book, that's a no. And it's like, what, when did that become a rule? Yeah. But, I, but even, even I can, I mean, you know, you look at a book and it's like, oh, that's a commitment. Do I want to spend $28 on a book by somebody I haven't heard of? And oof, right. I'm not going to finish that in a weekend. I get, I know, I, I recognize the, that it's a big ask. But that's so infuriating to think of a book that way like oh well you know it's heavy <laughs> but you know what you know what i think the opposite is or maybe the inverse is true in a way too where and i think this is some of what Lindsay and i have been feeling is like when you hit a book with real ambition that really goes for it and has a serious page length and someone is pulling it off i mean there's no it's it's one of the greatest reading experiences it's, it's just thrilling. that I mean, I remember the feeling the first time I read The End of Vandalism. I like, I didn't want to do anything else but read that novel because you're mm. just the absolute, the, it's, yeah. I mean, there's nothing better than a, than a, someone who's pulling it off on every page. Um, Who wrote Vandalism? Tom Drury. Mm. Oh, I forgot. You're a Drury head. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. I, well, I, I mean, I will say like to, I don't want to, I'm not at all trying to throw my editor under the bus here he could have said look we bought a 400 page book you better write a 400 page book right he was always like he was like he was like if this this is how long this book has to be this how long this is going to be but he was right the 80 pages we cut out he was 100 right on he knows what he's saying he knows exactly what the market is going to do he's not i'm not blaming him either ben i'm not blaming you no (laughs) he is he is he is he's uh, i mean he's like an editor of the old school he was one of those people who could look at the structure. We, I mean, late, really late in the game in the book. And I was still like fumbling for the ending. And he said, um, we were going through all the characters and there was one character. He's like, um, you need to write another chapter and she needs to be at the center of it. And I was like, oh. what are you talking about? And he's like, we see her on this day. We don't see her. It's 300 pages till we see her. We have to know what's going on. And I was like, oh, man, all right. Like, Cause I thought I was like close to done. Mm-hmm. And God, that's the worst feeling, right? <laughs> but he was right. He was right. He yeah. was right. Yes. So, I, I, yes. I, so I wrote, I wrote that chapter And the second I wrote that chapter. I was like, I know how the book ends. Oh like, this God. is it. This is the, this is the, the thing that has to resonate at the end of the book. And I was like, God damn you, Ben George, you're right. <laughs> you tricked me into writing the ending of my book. <laughs> I know that you don't, you don't want to hear this, but it's the structural stuff and the line edits are, I mean, he reads every word. It's crazy. That's wow. so awesome. I'm so, I'm so glad that, I mean, the best part about that this part of your of your story is that the fact that he recognized what 
you know, the kind of writer you were, the kind of projects you were working on and was willing to just stay with you and say, no, come over here with me. No, come over here with me. I mean, that's yeah. just, that's so heartening to hear. And the thing through all this, there was a point in which I was like, why do I even have an agent? I don't need an agent. I'm doing this on my own. <laughs> and it was when it was, when it was actually submitted and I saw what went on there. I was like, oh, that's why. You're an agent. Right. <laughs> right. right. Now I get it. Yeah. Uh, that was amazing work done all around. Were you uh, with the same agent that whole way through then, Brendan? Yeah, yeah. Um, Unreal. Gail, Gail Hockman. And I, I saw her, I was at Swanee back in like 2006, and I saw her on a panel. And there are other writers, there are other agents on the panel, and they were all talking about how, oh, you know, my, my writers, I call them all the time, and we hang out, and we get drinks, and we, like, I check in with them, and they check in with me, and they're like, my writers are like my best friends, and then they get to Gail, and Gail's like, if you send me your novel, I will read it. But if I miss my daughter's soccer game reading your lousy manuscript, I'm going to hold it against you. And I was oh like, I want, to work, I want to work with her. Yes. <laughs> yes. How old are your kids? Um, my kids are 19, 17, 15, and 12. And yeah. so it's easier to find time to write now. Is that oh, true? Yeah, now it is. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, there was, there are like some blackout years there where Right. Because you know, every other year, somebody new was showing up in the house. And I was like, oh, <laughs> the clock was just, just call, like clawing out of this, this sleep deficit I'm in. And oh, my God. Yeah, I, part of me, you know, one of the running themes of this podcast has been, you know, you can write anywhere and just, you know, like you can write anything and you can write anywhere. And if you have five minutes in the parking lot, you can write something on the notes app of your phone and mm -hmm. this and that. And but lately I've been like overcome by this other voice that's like, no, you can rest. It is okay to rest. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, my kids are getting older and hopefully like the time will start, you know, like they'll be in school more. <laughs> so I'll have actual time and actual brain space. And part of me wonders, like, was I wrong? Have I been wrong about like, just get the writing done, just do the writing, you know, because I feel like part of it's this frantic fear that, that it it's slipping away. And not, and, and so me, like just absolutely refusing to let it slip away. Um, and, and I, and maybe I should have trusted that the time would come. I don't know. I'm, I'm of two minds. I know. I'll tell you one of the reasons I love, I love listening to the show, to the pod. I mean, it's called the pod. One reason I love the Please, pod yes. is hearing from other writers. Like I, I, those writers who like, I know there are writers who write every day and they're like, I have a discipline that I stick to and I got up this time and I write every single day and I work towards this I have never been that person mm -hmm. and I just love hearing so many other the writers you've interviewed who are like oh my god I was away from this for so long or there was this long period and then I came back to it and because mm -hmm. that that's always been my relationship to it um I, like I've never been I've certainly I was not a young phenom you know, I mean I wasn't like you know I wasn't nobody was reading me in my 20s and 30s um and just to hear different writers approaches to it because I think I was always like put off I knew I was never going to be one of, I, I've never been disciplined enough to do it like every single day and mm -hmm. and I know that there are other ways to get the work done um and it is true like when our youngest went off to kindergarten it was like all of our kids were in college and I was like oh my god we have so much time like they're all <laughs> in the same building now from eight <laughs> until three <laughs> and mm -hmm. like what a it's just it, it, that freed up some time and some mental space for me, like uh, so often, like uh, I've spent so much time, like I feel like I spent time with the two of you and the writers that you have interviewed in my car and in my, in my, um, my ear pods when I'm walking the dog. And 
it's been great to hear like other people's approaches to this and to know that there's like so many different ways to get this done and that it's so easy to beat yourself up if you feel like you're doing it the wrong way. Yeah. Okay. How do you, Thank you know, you. it's your story is amazing because it's almost like you never, you allowed yourself the time to get to where you were going. Um, and I don't know if that's how it felt in the moment, but like, it did not feel like that in the moment. I think, <laughs> I, think I would, I would not do it. And the thing, like one of my most powerful motivators is probably a sense of self-loathing in some ways. Like, mm-hmm. God damn it. Why haven't you gotten this done? Right. Cause I think I, like I graduated from college and I was like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to have like, I'll be in the New Yorker in a couple of years and 30 under 30 and all that stuff. And I did not uh, get there. Yeah. None of us did. <laughs> yeah. And it just, it just seemed like, uh, I think it was, um, this shows you what a, what a, um, a podcast nerd I am too. I think it was Aaron Summers from uh, many episodes mm-hmm. ago Love said that. that there's like 35 good things that can happen to your book. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately she said 30. No, was it 30? Okay. Yeah. 30. And I didn't, I didn't know that. I knew like there were five of them. Um, and I knew I hadn't gotten any of those five. And then to find out that there's actually 30 of them, which was even <laughs> more <laughs> terrible. And I had exactly the same reaction in the moment. I was like 30, <laughs> there's 30. Um, yeah, all of those things. So I was like, I, I, it wasn't like I was, I was not Zen about this. I wasn't like, Oh, it'll come when it comes. I was constantly like, Oh my God, it's never going to come. It's never going to come. Um, because yeah because you but but then you were finding your way back to it even you know I I feel like um we all know people who say I call it like big talk like it's big Mm -hmm. talk you know like I'm gonna go do this and just the act of saying it is enough for them right yeah and um like it, it it like scratches the itch and then the thing never happens but it did for you 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 just kept taking the next step you just kept taking the next step and then taking the next step. Do you think like when you said the thing about your daughter's going to ask you one day about following your dreams, what was it that, that made you really start taking yourself seriously? Well, part of it was, part of it was that, I mean, and part of it, um, like when I, when I was at UVA um, for the two years there, uh, the thing that was so exciting and a little frightening was I'd been, I, I wasn't, I, you know, all the time in Chicago, entirely my own fault. Like I didn't reach out to other writers. I wasn't part of a community. I didn't like seek out people probably because I was like embarrassed that I wasn't writing. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I don't, you know, it's got to happen. I have to do it on my own. And only then can I like reach out to other people. So suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm at UVA and there were people in there in my classes who if given the choice between like writing a great story and or let's say maybe writing a great novel and curing cancer, they'd pick the novel every time. Like they were so, there were some people who were so, and I was at first like, oh, geez, really? Um, but that was kind of exciting too, to be around people for whom it meant so much because I felt yeah. like it meant a lot to me, but I, I wouldn't tell anybody like other than my wife that um, because I realized if I, if I said it, then I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't say it. Um, and then there, it was kind of like, it was really put up or shut up time. It was like, okay, you have two years to do this, to see what you don't have to do this, but to see what you can do in, in, in these two years. Um, who was at UVA, uh, when you were there, uh, on, on, on the faculty, um, Deborah Eisenberg, um, Holy shit. yeah, exactly. Ooh, who's wow. amazing. I mean, oh my God, she's incredible. Do you have any good Deborah Eisenberg stories? I mean, every story about Deborah is great. She's, um, she, I mean, she would like, you'd bring your story in and she would look at the story and she would like run her finger along the page or in the first sentence. And she'd say, 
you use the word waited here. Why waited? Waited. <laughs> Delayed, waited. And she would like, she would like weigh every word. And then and she would like, so sometimes you'd get through a page because she would go through and basically like pr put pressure on every word on the way down the page in, a, in the most delightful way too. Yeah. Um, and I, I uh, yeah, I, I brought her to the college where I teach recently as a kind of guest writer for the day so that my students could meet her. And she just, I mean, she carries herself like a queen in exile, like a, <laughs> an aristocrat from some other land and um, had just had great stories to tell. So Deborah was there, Ann Beatty was there. Oh my um, God. <laughs> who was also wonderful and a little sometimes frightening to work with, but she was a great reader for me. I mean, frightening because she has such high standards for herself right. and you feel like you, you don't want to disappoint her, which is truer all around. And Chris Tillman, um, mm. who is one of those writers who is, was the first like writer who acted as a mentor to me in a way that made me feel seen. Like, mm. cause I've, I've been away from writing for like 12 years and suddenly I'm in a class with this guy whose stories I had read and, and had really loved. And um, he took everybody like you were, he treated everybody like you were a writer and an artist on the level that, that he was and anybody else was. Like you were colleagues from the beginning. Um, and that was uh, really important for me. He was, mm -hmm. he was a huge figure for me. And, 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 and like you mentioned, like when you didn't take this stuff seriously, with those people that you couldn't not take yourself seriously because you, um, they kind of in, never insisted on it, but I just felt like, why, why waste their time? Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just so happy that you did take yourself seriously. Can you talk a little bit about uh, this new thing that you're working on and how that's been? It's kind of kicking my ass right now. Like I, um, I wanted to, write, like I went into this, like I jokingly said when the, when the World of Tomorrow came out, um, I was like on a panel somewhere and somebody's like, oh, and what's your next book gonna be? And I was like, why are you, ask, why are you asking me that? I'm just <laughs> barely publishing this one. But I said, well, the next one's gonna be, um, it's gonna be 200 pages. It's gonna have a single narrator and it's gonna be set like right now. So wow. no historical research. <laughs> And so I'm not working, sort of working under those constraints. Like I, I would love to write a really good 220 page book. Um, but I, I am having a hard time figuring out, um, like the thing I, what I have right now is kind of tonally all over the place. And, I, and more time, every time I come back to it, it's like, oh, I thought this was like a serious sort of like social novel. And maybe it's actually a comedy and maybe it's, so I'm having a hard time nailing down the, um, the, the, the kind of voice that's telling the book. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to like cut some of my impulses. Like the first book, my impulse there was always to reach out um, away from like one character, but what's going on with this character. And I'm trying to keep it a little closer in so that it moves um, more quickly. So yeah, I'm trying to figure out, anyway, if you have any advice on how to write a short novel, I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> Because I, there's a lot of, I've been reading a lot of shorter books and, and love that, um, the pace and the brevity and the, the sort of force that they can have. Um, I'll tell you, here's the, here's my trick. When you okay. get to the, when you get to 65,000 words, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you just send it to your agent and that's it. <laughs> Say, what do you think? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> now go I mean, sell been, this. Exactly. Well, I, I, so I started a new job over the summer, which has taken time and it took me away from the book for a while. And so I've been only in the last couple of weeks kind of coming back to the, the manuscript that I have. And I'm realizing that there's like one, there's a little bit of point of view shifting. And one of them, I think is like, oh, this is, this could be the book. And the other character, I'm like, oh, this guy's got to go. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> 
So I don't know whether, I don't know what to do with that. So I'm still, I'm very much in the thick of it right now. Are you the kind of writer, Brendan, where you're going to take this thing as far as possible by yourself at this point and then show it to your editor? Or are you, are you the kind of person who's maybe sending, you know, like every, every couple hundred pages or something or. No, I I feel like, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not showable. Like I have a couple of friends who, you know, have been asking to read and stuff I I will look at too, but I just don't feel like it's like, I know what's wrong with it right now. Right. So I don't think that um, input would be, they're either going to say, Oh, this is better than you think. And I'm like, yeah, actually it isn't, but they also wouldn't say that. They're also going to say, Oh, here's all the things that are wrong with it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. So (laughs) I I want, I kind of want to wait until I don't know what's either. I don't know what's broken or I don't know how to fix it before I send it to them. Mm -hmm. Um, and I hate, I, just, I hate giving up on things. Like I hate throwing things away. Like I'll, you know, I'll hear people say, oh, I've got three novels in the drawer and no one's ever going to see those. And I always think, oh my God, really? Like that? Like I, I am tenacious. That's how I feel. I, and, yeah. I have novels in, in the drawer and I never thought I would be that person ever in my life because really? it, it feels so precious. It feels yeah. like, like, oh my God, how could you come that close to death that many times, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and it's, and then they, it's just the way it is. It's like, yeah you just start writing the next one you know oh my god i mean yeah, this is think- the one i mean because the because of the story i read at the beginning you know that was i thought part of the novel and i'm right now looking at this novel and i'm like can i just chop this up for parts like are there two or three <laughs> stories are there two or three stories in here i don't know if there are but i'll just change the names and make it into different people and then it's it's short stories but i i would rather come out of these this time with a novel in hand rather than um, rather than a couple more stories well, this has been a true pleasure. We yes. absolutely love you and your writing and oh, are so excited. So I mean, so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, I, I know I keep gushing about how much I love listening to the show. Um, and my kids are making fun of me too, because they're like, oh, you're in that show called I'm a writer, but we know. <laughs> okay. We made the joke first. We, oh, we yeah. said I our know. fans I, to- I told them that I was like, they're ahead of you on this. I'm like, yeah, still I'm like, all right. <laughs> At least they're thinking about us, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So to sum this episode up, Ben George is innocent. He is. Short (laughs) stories are bullshit. No. (laughs) Wait, I I did not say short stories are bullshit. (laughs) There are five to 30 good things that can happen to you after publishing. Mm -hmm. That's it. Probably zero. And yeah. Although the thing is sometimes, you know, I think when the first book came out, like I didn't know anything about publishing and there were, there were like, you know, there were some good things, really good things that happened, but I didn't know enough about publishing to realize that it wasn't, there's a, I guess there's like a number where you go into the red zone. We're like, Oh, things are going to happen here. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that. So I was like, Oh man, this book's going to blow up and this is going to be a movie and it's going to be, and then, you know, it wasn't, but I, I let myself believe that for a little while. You wait, or- I, I, I just remembered this. You got the John Irving blurb. That's one of the oh. 30 things. Yeah, that came late. That was wild. That um, because we had we had approached him really early and and he never wrote back. So, like, you know, you don't pester John Irving for a blurb. <laughs> John um, Irving. And but then but, but but then he actually wrote back, like after the hardcover came out before paperback, he wrote back and he was like, uh, I have this big table in my house full of books people send me and my former assistant put years underneath them. But I had a bunch of friends over to watch the NCAA wrestling competition the other day. So we cleared off the table. I found your book. I read it. Here's a blurb. And I was like, holy (gasps) shit, John. That's the most John Irving shit ever. He's like, a bunch of wrestlers are coming over to watch the NCAA championship. He's still on brand with the wrestling. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. 
Oh my god, that's the best oh. story. I love. And then he sent he sent me a picture of one of his tattoos as well. What? What was yeah. it? Did you frame Where it? Where was it? It was like a proof of life video, like to prove this is the actual John Irvin. <laughs> exactly. He has like the last the last few words of Moby Dick tattooed on his arm. Of course, oh my god. of course he does. What a yeah. story! Yeah. Wow. I mean, everything about him is it's like if he's a character, like he's an internally consistent character. Everything lines up. It was great. <laughs> Yeah, I think like, yeah, that's that counts as like one, two, four of the good things <laughs> that can so. happen. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I thank cannot wait to really finish good. reading this book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. I was, I was looking, I looked at the clock and it was already like 8.05 and I was like, oh shit, I have so many other things I want to ask him and talk to him about. The funny. only thing I wish we had done was talk more about his stories because um, we're just perpetuating yeah. the the thing where no one talks about stories or cares about stories. We need to- we, We'll have him back on in a year. Perfect, perfect, perfect. This is the, my most intense work week of the year. So oh, it's Not been, even Christmas? Oh, no, it's not even close. Thanksgiving is way more intense. because christmas the thing with christmas shopping is people they shop more all of december so everything is heightened but with thanksgiving it's an intense like five days so what is it like saturday through wednesday so for this week yeah it's like saturday through wednesday but even friday but the thing is the amount of setup and moving things around making room for turkeys whatever it's just there's just a lot of moving parts so it's really like the two weeks before are kind of intense i tried to go i went grocery shopping friday yesterday Mm -hmm. because i was Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna try to not go when it's really busy right it was still a little busy yep absolutely (laughs) (laughs) but i think i got everything nice i was like Every time I would go grocery shopping over the past like four or five weeks, I was picking up some things I knew I would need on Thanksgiving that would keep. Mm-hmm. I was really proud of myself for doing that because then I didn't have to like go crazy yesterday. Let's uh, let's talk Thanksgiving food. What is your, uh, you're not a meat eater. No. So what is your, what's your approach? Okay. So I bought the Trader Joe's already cooked chicken in a bag thing or not chicken, turkey. Mm-hmm. And I'll just like, cause Ben likes Turkey and maybe some of the kids will try it. Yep. Um, so I got that. And then I always do sweet potato casserole. Um, How do you do it? Do you do marshmallows on top? Bro, I do uh, uh, brown sugar, pecans and marshmallows. Sounds great. So I do that. And then that's like one of my, I could eat that every meal. I love totally. it so much. Um, Matt, I do sour cream, mashed potatoes, mm-hmm. cauliflower gratin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to do Brussels sprouts this year. Uh, rolls, cranberry sauce. Oh, and then I make stuffings. I make um, stuffing muffins Ooh. instead of just stuffing. Um, and then the very, and then I make two pies. I'm, I'm making pumpkin pie this year and apple cranberry pie. Ooh, nice. Yeah. And then the, my favorite thing is I also buy tofurkey slices so that we can yep. have the Thanksgiving sandwich the day after. Nice. Mm. I, so that's like my main thing. What about you guys? We do pretty straight up. We do a turkey. We'll do stuffing. I'm not a big mashed potato person, but, mm. but Brit is. If it was just stuffing and gravy, 
that would be okay for me. Yeah. So, you know, turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes. I would rather do baked potatoes. I just, I like a baked potato. We're what not is it the texture? Gonna, I just feel like, I feel like with mashed potatoes, if they're, if they're excellent, okay, it's great. But like an average mashed potato or like a slightly missed the mark mashed potato, I'd rather have almost any other kind of potatoes. Like I hear roast, you. that's all I'm saying. Yep. But I mean, I'm not like anti-mashed potato. Uh, so yeah, stuffing, turkey, mashed potato. And then I'm going to buy a pecan pie and a pumpkin pie because I feel like that'll, I don't know. I don't want, I don't want pie pressure on bread. That's a lot. <laughs> I always make mine ahead of the day. Oh, nice. And um, I think I'm going to make a lot. Like I'm going to do my pies the day or two before. I'm going to do my sweet potatoes the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even the stuffings the day before. So then I uh, just have to do like the rolls and like the heating of the turkey. <laughs> right. And the mashed potatoes the day of. Are you, what time, what is the ideal time for you guys to eat? Are you like early? Like, or are you later in the day? We used to do it at dinner time. Mm-hmm. Um, now with like kids and nap time and stuff, we don't remember. I think we're going to do dinner time. What about you? As early as possible is what I want. I want like early, early. Yeah. <laughs> if it was like 1130, I would be in heaven. Yeah. Just the eating all day. And then the eating of yes. the leftovers the next day is my favorite thing. I like it. If you eat early, everybody's wrecked. They're like they're out. And then I can just go do whatever I want. I can mm-hmm. watch football. I can be like with them, but it's, it's almost like I'm alone because they're so full and tired. Like, yep. So I want to take advantage of everybody getting drunk on food to just be able to have a day partially to myself while with them. Yep. I'm a great dad. That's it. Thanksgiving read Brendan Matthews. Mm-hmm. We're on lit hub now. Yeah. We're on LitHub, which is Alex cool. Be- and I barely know what that means. <laughs> we barely know what it means, but with the uh, you know the first episode with LitHub went up with with Hillary Leichter, and I love that they you know we ha- they have a little excerpt up on like the initial page. You can listen to the whole episode obviously over on LitHub, but I don't know, it just classes us up a little bit as we're like tired and slurring in our basements. We have like. <laughs> They like put a great pretty dress on us or something and comb our hair. So it's nice. (laughs) We're legitimate now. (laughs) We're just two idiots in different basements. That's for all our haters. (laughs) I wish we had haters. I wish we had like vocal haters because that would fuel me so much. (laughs) Haters, where you at? Hit us up. Please get mad at me. You have no idea how much you have no idea how much like <laughs> that'll give me in life. Please at us. <laughs> All right. Happy Thanksgiving. All right, bud. Happy Thanksgiving. See you. Bye. I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah.